0: where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans, by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, May 26th, we're studying Revelation chapter 7, verses 1-8. to 8. In today's text, John sees four angels holding back four winds, and then he hears the number of the servants of God sealed on their foreheads. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today. We have with us regular guest Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Lynn, Kansas. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me back. So we get started today, Pastor Cook. Just talk a little bit about your general approach to the Book of Revelation. How should we handle it as Christians? Why it is a why is it a useful, helpful book for us?
1: Yeah, the general approach should be uh justification by grace through faith in jesus christ uh that should be the general approach so um, too often people go diving into revelation to discover something new something uh, unknown before something that's going to reinterpret or reframe everything we've ever come to know Uh, but that is not the goal uh, or the task of the apostles or anyone who rightly calls themselves christians uh, we hold on to the apostolic teaching that Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten Son of God incarnate, has died for our sins and risen for our salvation, and has ascended and is reigning um, on you know from uh, for the right hand of the Father until He comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And so this book fits within that framework. It doesn't do anything new, but bolsters. The already clear confession of who Christ is while simultaneously giving us a fair amount of uh, hope because as this book says and as we have experienced by common observation uh, the world is a broken and uh, heart-rending place um, filled with sorrow and difficulty and so there are questions about who's really in charge here what's happening and John uh, is given this revelation to assure us, yet again, that God is actually reigning through His Son Jesus, the, the Lamb who is slain, and uh, and this is not a part of uh, apart from the you know will or understanding or power of God, and uh, and so that that's the approach to to revelation, and. Um, we want to be careful as we dive into this particular text that we've got a lot of symbolism, so it requires a lot of unpacking. Um, so if you think of this like math, um, we can tell you the answers, but it's probably helpful if we show you, show you our work along the way. So that would be a general approach to the book of Revelation that uh, should be maintained by people who are faithfully calling themselves Christian.
0: And, and in terms of how the book is useful, helpful to Christians, then, what you were saying about the comfort that it provides when we look at the, the brokenness of this world, the way sin runs rampant, to know that God reigns over all, that would be one of the, the helpfulness, the, one of the helpful aspects of this book, particularly. Right. Very good. So we're in Revelation 7 today, Pastor Cook. Now, we've been reading about seals being opened. We're not going to hear about a seal being opened in Revelation chapter 7 how does Revelation 7 fit into the context of the book as a whole, and especially the the cycle of the seals that we've been seeing?
1: Within the cycle of the seals, um, well, let's back up. The scroll, uh, after the letters to the churches, the seven churches, uh, we really enter into a new portion um, of, the, of the book, specifically the revelation uh, aspect. John sees uh, God sitting on the throne, Uh, scroll seven sealed scroll in his hand Um, there's lamenting about who can open it the lamb kind of steps forward as the one who's capable of doing so and uh, yeah they start opening these seals and with every opening of seal we get more information and uh, that's uh, an analogy sure to go wrong Uh, you know it's like uh, clicking the read more section of an article online you know, every time you open up another seal, you get to read more. Um, at any rate, between the sixth and the seventh seal, uh, we have uh, what uh, commentator uh, Lou Brighton uh, calls uh, an interlude. Uh, and i he's smarter than me, but uh, so I'm sure he's right. But it, it certainly rings true. And uh, in this interlude, we're given um, a comforting image of both the church on earth Uh, that is the Church Militant, and uh, the Church in Heaven, uh, the Church Triumphant. And so these are the verses about the Church Militant, that is, those who belong to the Lord who have not yet died uh, the first death.
0: So with the, the six seals, as you said, each time a seal gets opened, we get to read more And I I suppose, you know, where, where the analogy falls down is we don't know what's coming next, but the lamb who's opening the seals does, this is a scroll that's written front and back. So it's not unknown to God. He knows all he's, he's under, he's controlling it and, and directing it. But what, what have we read so far in this, in this scroll? I mean, what, just give us a recap of kind of what the six seals have shown us.
1: Uh, they've shown us a lot of, uh, trouble in the world a lot of, uh, I, I could think of uh, Psalm forty-six. Uh, you know, um, though the mountains be thrown into the heart of the sea, that kind of stuff. Uh, though the waters roar and foam, there is a river whose stream may glad the cities of God. And so we're in this tumultuous world um, that has uh, has been created and is being reigned by uh, by our Father in heaven. And so a lot of lot of difficulty in the first seven. We see the the. The so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse, and uh, a lot of challenges—economic, uh, medical, you know, wars, et cetera. So that's what we've seen seen thus far, and uh, to summarize it as succinctly as I can.
0: Sure. And in, in the sixth seal in particular, there was what we see that the end come. I mean, the the sixth seal opened. There's these signs in the sky everyone is calling upon the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us, we're afraid of the wrath of the Lamb. And I I do think the question at the end of verse 17, who can stand, I think chapter 7 is going to serve to answer that question.
1: Right, right. That's a good, that's a very good point. That's exactly right. It's going to unpack that.
0: So. All right, so the and again, this isn't an, an interlude of sorts, and I do think that that's a, a helpful way to, to think about chapter 7 before the seventh seal will be opened in chapter 8. A bit of an interlude, again, answering that question, who can stand? You said we're going to see both the Church Militant and the Church Triumphant. Today's text is going to be the Church Militant. Maybe talk a little bit more about that title first. Why do, why do we call this the Church? What is the Church Militant?
1: Yeah, the Church Militant are... Um... <laughs> Uh, we're fighting, right? So as uh, as a Lutheran uh, theologian, Oswald Bayer says, and I absolutely love the way he phrases this in a conversation about baptism and the threefold renunciation of the devil, to renounce the devil all of his works and all of his ways, Oswald Bayer will say, um, this is a reminder that no Christian lives in neutral space. Mm. And I love the way that he phrases that because um, I I would argue that maybe that's not something that our um, people understand very well they they think it's it's mostly neutral but they're wrong it's it's mostly antagonistic on account of um, the devil the world and our own sinful flesh and so we are fighting not against flesh and blood but against the principalities and the powers over this present darkness as saint paul says in ephesians 6. Um, and to that end then uh, we are uh, we are soldiers who are fighting and the uh, Apostle Paul, in his letter to Timothy, second letter to Timothy, will say, "Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ." Um, and uh, I think in uh, there are a couple other pl- passages that'll do this too. But long story short, the the Christian church on earth is often depicted in terms of the military. Now it's a different, completely different kind of military. This is we're not taking up actual weapons uh, in fighting. Uh, Here against our brothers and sisters on this planet, uh, or our neighbor, but we we are fighting uh, against the powers. And, um, and so we're, again, we're not in neutral space. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, be aware, be watchful, be sober minded. Uh, what elsewhere in the book of Revelation, then, we get, uh, blessed are those who die in the Lord for, um, from now on, for their deeds follow them. They are at rest from their labors. And so that's the difference between the militant and the triumphant, is the militant are working, uh, fighting, and the triumphant, they're not fighting anymore. They're at rest from those labors. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, that is a beautiful thing. Um, but we're looking at the, what about us? What about us who are fighting every day to, um, Cock, cock or sin, you know, yet again. And, and, you know, the good that I would do, I don't do. That what I don't do, I keep on doing. Um, that kind of fight. So that's the uh, terminology for you.
0: Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and look and see what John sees concerning the church militant here in Revelation 7, the first half of the chapter. John writes, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. That's our text for today, it's Revelation 7, verses 1 to 8. All right, so Pastor Cook, at the beginning of the chapter, John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Talk about four angels, four corners of the earth, to get us started.
1: Sure. The angels, this is, um, you know, he's, John is winking at his Jewish audience here. And so uh, rather than trying to parse out who these four angels are, where do they come from, the angels within Jewish literature um, are often just understood as being, you know, the servants of God who in many ways control uh, the forces of nature. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll see later on in this um, same book, uh, An Angel of the Sea, you know, and... Uh, so that that's what's going on. So we just we've got the the four angels essentially, and then the four corners are, is just representative of uh, everywhere, right? Uh, and so we're we're covering all things. Uh, so like um, four
0: four corners of the earth, four points of the compass, kind of thing, every direction possible.
1: Right. Yep. So um, that's what we have uh, in verse one. There, you got the four. They're standing there, and what they're doing is again the very thing that in Jewish literature angels do. Which is they are having their hands in; they're involved in uh, the kind of the natural forces of of the world, and specifically, we're told that probably already jumping.
0: Oh, that's fine. Nope, it's fine. it's there. It's still in
1: one. They're holding back the four winds of the earth. Um, that uh, and then with the ex- explicit statement that the reason they're doing is this is so that the winds. Um, would not uh, blow or otherwise harm, you know, all things.
0: So, what's the what are these four winds that they're holding yeah. back?
1: The the winds are representative here of God's uh, eschatological wrath. So, think the four winds are the wrath of God that comes on the last day. And again, I said that this is a bit like math. You got to show your work. And back in Jeremiah chapter 49, this is exactly how that phrase gets used when uh, there is a uh, pronouncement against the Elamites. And so if I uh, should have had it up here, but it's right here. Um, So it's concerning Elam, and it says, And I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, And I will scatter them, that is the Elamites, to those winds, and there will be no nation uh, to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. And so here, back in Jeremiah, we have these four winds, and it's clearly some level of destruction that's working a significant amount of harm. It's driving or exiling people all over. And it's so comprehensive that it says there isn't a single nation on earth uh, where these people won't be refugees. So they're going to be scattered absolutely everywhere. So that's kind of showing the work. Now, if you got that kind of tucked away in your mind, you realize, okay, uh, God is withholding His uh, His eschatological wrath, His judgment on the last day, um, and the rest of this text is going to show us, okay, why is He doing that?
0: So, and and in. in, in- the context of the sixth seal, where that end had come. And the the winds were not mentioned there, but you had all these other signs that were going to accompany the end, and they were, you know, the stars falling, the sun being black like sackcloth, the sky rolling up like a scroll. So what we find out now in chapter 7 is, yes, that is a, a great day of the Lamb's wrath that's coming. Who can stand from it? So part of the answer to that question is that God is, well, God through his angels is holding back that destruction for a time. So the answer to that question is going to start with the work of God on behalf of, as we'll find out, his people.
1: Right, right. Uh, yeah, and in a very real sense, the answer is nobody, uh, which is why we need to uh, fall into the, the work of God, as you said. And so, um, you know, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might we would say. So it right. is the Lord who's going to uh, empower and equip, he will, as uh, the prophet, or the apostle Peter says, he will establish you mm. on that day, and that's yeah. in First Peter 5.
0: Right, As and as the Lord has said to the seven churches in the letters, the one who conquers is the one who receives the, the blessing in each one of the letters. And we've talked at length about the one who conquers is the one who is found in Christ, who is the conquering hero the one the one who has conquered sin death and the devil for us so yeah who can stand ultimately no one unless you are in christ who has stood for us so the the four angels are holding back the four winds well
1: i'm going to interrupt you here because I, it's just the holy spirit dropped a reminder in my head that uh, kind of the obverse of this would be uh, Paul's famous question in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can stand against us, right? Or who can be against us? And, and in a very real sense, the answer is, well, everybody, but it's irrelevant. Uh, and so you, you put those two together, they fit
0: Uh very the good. same, different sides of the same coin. Yeah, yeah. So the four winds are being held back by, by the four angels so that no wind would blow on earth or sea or against any tree. We're going to hear about the earth and sea being harmed again, or being withheld from harm later. What Any significance to the the earth, the sea, the trees here?
1: Uh, It's just a definition of a part to to speak of the whole. Uh, Possibly the tree uh, could be... There's this occasional uh, refrain throughout the Old Testament about everyone sitting under his own tree. Mm. Uh, It becomes a picture of peace, um, specifically um, in uh, the reign of Solomon. In First Kings chapter four, I believe, um, and it is reminiscent of a prophecy uh, that Isaiah will have later, where he talks about um, people won't be under their own tree; they will be under their own tree, etc. So it, it's kind of, you know, earth, sea, and your individual homes, your your place of rest, your man cave, uh, so to speak. It, it's all it's all subject to the wrath of God when that wrath
0: comes. Okay so for the time being these winds are being held back from affecting all of that then in verse 2 john sees another angel so now we're at angel number five in this vision and this angel is ascending from the rising of the sun talk about the angel and where he's coming from
1: sure the the text doesn't tell us much more about the angel other than he's arising um, or ascending with the rising of the sun and the rising of the sun has um, probably the place that our hearers are most familiar with this language might be Malachi chapter four. Um, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you shall burst out uh, like cattle from, uh, like calves from the stall. And uh, so that's uh, a reference to, to healing. Um, we might also remember Psalm 30 verse five. Uh, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so we we often see that imagery even in our culture. These many years later, uh, you know the the rising of an, of an, the dawn of a new day or the dawn of a new age. Or uh, we have that language. It becomes uh, almost synonymous with with hope and peace uh, and comfort. And then I would also, and this is not something I saw from a commentary. It was a just a thought that jumped into my head, um, but it certainly rings true, which is the destruction of things is often described as coming from everywhere. So if you think about the the flood, you know, the waters came from above, the waters came from below. Uh, if you think of the prophet uh, Jeremiah, he's constantly talking terror on every side, terror on every side. You know, it's just The destruction is coming from every direction. And if you talk to parishioners, Christians today, especially those who are sensitive to the nonsense of the world, they'll speak that, speak that way too. It's just everywhere you look, it's another thing that's discouraging, distressing, not good, right, uh, or salutary. In contrast to the destruction, Salvation comes from a location, specific direction. And so here we see that, we see that at at play. We see um, salvation um, uh, rising, you know, not that the angel is Christ himself, but uh, with the rising of the sun, it's coming from, okay, hey, look at there is a very specific place where we can point and consider the salvation of God. And one passage that it's really two passages, it shows up twice in the Psalms. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 both end with the phrase, "'Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion.'" Hmm. Um, uh, but uh, but we might also uh, point out how we want, you know, salvation to come from Heaven. Um, and so that, that's something to kind of tuck away.
0: So and I, I like that insight, that the destruction comes from every direction salvation comes from just the one. So the Lord comes from Zion. And then if I can add to that, just thinking about especially salvation coming from Zion, I'm reminded of the picture from Isaiah chapter 2, where then all the nations from all directions would then stream to that salvation. So the Lord knows destruction comes from every direction. He brings his salvation from this one place, ultimately from his Son, in order to draw all people from every direction, away from that destruction that surrounds them, and then to himself. Does right. Does that maybe complete the picture? Sure. Well, uh, yeah. And that's how Jesus speaks about his death on the cross.
1: Uh, there you go. When I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And uh, so the, the death, so there, the death from the resurrection certainly uh, puts its final stamp on it.
0: That's right. And, and that's, that's even recorded by John, the same writer that we're reading here. So even better. Wonderful fantastic so okay we've got this fifth angel who's coming from the rising of the sun this is this is good news to see that and he's holding the seal of the living God so talk about what what he's holding here what is this seal of the living God
1: uh, the seal of the living God is uh, the, the mark of salvation really this is uh, that's what this seal is he's going to place it on people and it will mark them as ones who are not destined for wrath. Okay, so it is, um, I just had another thought. Let me look it up here. I believe this is a reference in First Thessalonians 5 that says, yes, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain the salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in him. Uh, so this is the seal that is that is coming. Um, is God is going to uh, mark us with His salvation, so that, ah, now I know, now I'm comforted. this eschatological wrath that's coming. Who can stand? I can stand. I can stand, not by my own might, but by the but by the seal of the living God.
0: Hmm. Talk a little bit more about the image of a seal. I mean, we've been talking about the seals that were opened on the scroll. Here we're talking about a seal being put, as we'll find out on the forehead. What is the image of a, of a seal? I'm not sure if, if we always think about what a seal is. A uh,
1: seal is an government. authoritative mark uh, that is representative of someone uh, that's higher than than ourselves. Uh, so uh, that's at its most basic uh, level. It's uh, this this belongs to me uh, kind of a thing. This message, you know, is like uh, my name is so-and-so and I approve this message. You know, it's got that. Uh, kind of uh, feel to it, but it's uh, more artistic and beautiful than what we experience. <laughs> um, and uh, so we've got that going on. Another place that will help us understand a bit about the seal is 2 uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 1. And in this, uh, of course, Paul is writing writing to the Corinthians and he, he says to them about how he was... Uh, they were sealed. He says, it is God who establishes us with you in, in in Christ Jesus and has anointed us, all of us together, and who has also put his seal on us, right? And he has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so in this passage of Second Corinthians, we uh, have the seal connected quite explicitly with the Holy Spirit, Um who, as you may recall from the Apostles' Creed, works in the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Um, so um, that's, that's what we have with the seal. We can point to kind of the moment of the seal, but... Uh, Maybe we'll,
0: we'll pick that yeah. one up when we get to the actual sealing that this angel wants to do. Right. So let's, let's talk more about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking about Revelation 7 with Pastor Tim Cook. We'll be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, May 26th. We're studying Revelation chapter 7 verses 1 to 8 with Pastor Tim Cook. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Lynn, Kansas. Pastor Cook, prior to the break we were talking about this fifth angel that John sees. Four angels are holding back the four winds. The fifth angel comes from the rising of the Sun. He's holding the seal of the living God, and then he calls out with a loud voice to those four angels, and John says those are the ones who have been given power to harm the earth and sea. But the fifth angel says to them, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So we were talking about this seal beforehand. Here is where this fifth angel talks about its use. Talk about this command that the fifth angel gives to the four.
1: The command not to harm, again, if we want keep in mind this... I keep saying this fancy word, which just means end times, this end times final judgment. Okay, well, what's God waiting for is probably uh, a good question. And that's a question we definitely ask when we're suffering. Like, what are you waiting for? You meet person who's upper 90s and they're like, I don't know why God hasn't taken me yet. Uh, you get a lot of that kind of stuff. Well, on a on a final judgment uh, theme or emphasis, the what's God waiting for? He's, he's waiting to seal his people um, he's waiting for the elect. And, um, and so this is what we have. Uh, so hold off, hold off. We're going to, we're going to seal the servants of God, uh, of our God, uh, on, on their foreheads. And so that, um, invites a number of other questions, (laughs) but I want to focus maybe on, not even maybe, I want to focus on the forehead part. Um, this is where the seal is being placed. Uh, at, the, at the first um, go, or the first thing to keep in mind on this, is in the book of Ezekiel, which has a lot of similarities with the book of Revelation in its uh, kind of fantastic, apocalyptic, um, prophetic imagery, um, that, you know, multiple-headed beasts and lots of eyes and wheels within wheels spinning around, uh, stuff like that, so it's got a similar genre. Um, which this is one of the ways you can help the Bible interpret uh, the Bible uh, is you you find like things and see how they inform one another. Well, in uh, in Ezekiel nine, uh, there are these these idolaters that are um, floating around, and there's a command that they are to be executed, um, and so. It says, bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Uh, It says, behold, six men came from uh, the direction of the upper gate. Uh, And then it uh, says, then there was also a man with them clothed in linen who was uh, with a writing case at his waist. And they went out and stood. And it says that the glory of the Lord had gone up uh, from the angel and they're going through. And then verse four, it says, pass through the city. Uh, of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed within it. Mm. And um, so there is this command to mark people who hate, who sigh, who are, you know, how does Jesus say in the Beatitudes, hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? They're going to be satisfied. So they're marked in the forehead, and then when the executioners travel about through the city, those with the marks are spared, much like the Passover, right? You're marking the door with the blood of the lamb and the the angel of wrath passes over them. And so on the one hand, uh, you get the idea that John is winking uh, to the prophetic imagery of um, Ezekiel, which is almost certainly true. Um, This carries with it the value of recognizing, once again, I cannot stress this enough, What's being spoken here in Revelation is nothing new. This is the same message. It's exactly the same message. And so he's, um, it's the same message filtered through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, so we're granted more clarity. And um, so that's what's, put on, that's what's put on the foreheads there. That, that's certainly a part of it.
0: So, all right, so the signs put on the forehead, both in Ezekiel, and then the book of revelation you had brought up that passage from second corinthians 1 about the holy spirit being the seal or the guarantee how does that connect to the sign being put on the forehead and and even how do we how do how do people receive this sign
1: right so the we've got a very clear kind of baptismal reference here uh, one because we know in baptism the lord gives us the holy spirit this is uh peter's uh pentecost sermon right all about the holy spirit uh repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit and this promise is true for you and your children um and to all those who are far off uh so we've got that um going on um and then it is it is a visit it's a visible um mark it's a visible sign it's a tangible um tactile experience which is uh something that that god has blessed us with we would call this the means of grace the the manner in which god brings his blessings to bear upon his people um and so they that is kind of how uh the seal is is first brought to bear for for most people though um it's really you know it's Always through the word, right? God's working through His word, so I, I always feel like I need to offer this clarity, especially for uh, you know adult converts who have who have known their Lord um, for a long time. I and I've encountered this now three times in my ministry. Uh, I've taken uh, an adult through an adult instruction class. They're interested in joining our church. Uh, they've been worshiping with us. They confess Jesus as Lord. They have faith all these things. And then when I ask them, hey, if you're interested in joining our church, I'm going to need to know when you're baptized, you know, things like that. Three times I've had them say, oh, I don't know when I was baptized. And they start digging into it and they discover that they weren't. And so I've had the joy of uh, being able to baptize uh, them. And, um, you know, so what about the seal there? Well, God is always working through his word. Uh, and, you uh, in in that case, it, he's working in, through his word without, without the baptism. But like the Ethiopian eunuch, what's to prevent me from being baptized? Nothing. Uh, and so we we bring that that promise to bear as well.
0: Just thinking about the connection to baptism here and the baptismal rite that's often used in our churches the the sign of the cross that we put on the forehead and the heart would be a not that's not the seal itself baptism i mean that's that's the gift right but that would be a reminder of what's happening in baptism and same with making the sign of the cross within the the worship service
1: right yeah you got to tie it back to uh the again be strong in the lord and the strength of his might and uh god shows his strength uh through uh, the death and resurrection of his
0: son so we've we've got the the mark that's being put now like why who who gets the benefit here I mean do I need to be marked for my sake or is this why why this mark who's whose benefit
1: sure so the person who is marked obviously benefits from being saved from the wrath to come so there's there's a benefit there upon that person uh, but otherwise the the mark is um is really for God <laughs> God is marking people for himself so that when the judgment comes he might I hate it separate the sheep from the goats, as it were. Um, it, and the reason this is an important question to ask is because sometimes uh, people who get a little excited about the possibility of a new interpretation that could be given to us through Revelation uh, will kind of desire to know if the person next to them is marked. And so they make the mark about, you know, you, know, you me, and others, uh, except that not what the text is saying at all. The mark is a mark for the benefit of God so that when the day comes, uh, the, the system is in place. We don't miss any. Um, and um, not that God would miss any. He's all powerful, I understand that. He's speaking in language that we can understand. Um, so it, it's a it's a question, um, it's, a, it's a sign that God can see. And in that regard, um, that's important. So if I gave you my high school yearbook and told you I went to a public high school, I, if I gave you my high school yearbook and said circle all the Christians, um, you can't look at the picture and kind of you know discern out the mark and figure out who's who. Um, but if I gave that same yearbook to God the Father in Heaven, He could. And uh, and so so the mark is one that is it's visible, it's tactile, it experienced. We've got certificates and and witnesses and everything. This happened, but the actual ongoing kind of recognition of that mark. Uh, it's received by faith in, in the person who's received it and then uh, seen only by God.
0: You made reference to the book of Ezekiel when it comes to the marking on the foreheads. Are there any other places in the scriptures that speak of a mark or something on the forehead that might come to bear in this passage?
1: Yeah, there's there's two. I did a quick uh, search on just, where's the first time the word forehead explicitly uh, is brought up? And it's in uh, the book of Exodus, where the um, Aaron Aaron is uh, given uh, a signet, uh, a metal plate that he is to uh, put on his head with a blue sash. Uh, And it's, so this metal signet, right, or seal is on his head and it says, um, written on that seal is holy to the Lord. And so you can really begin to plumb the connections here, which is you've got Aaron, who's a priest. Uh, He's doing this on behalf of the people. He has a signet or a seal on his forehead uh, that is uh, marking him and indeed all the people for whom he represents as being holy uh, to the Lord, or as we might add to this particular text, um, able to stand the wrath of the Lamb. And so that, and then, and then you can really begin to plumb all of the, the priests, uh, right, where a uh, Jesus is of the uh, priesthood of the order of Melchizedek, but we are a holy nation, a people uh, belonging to God, uh, and of His possession, and so we we are marked as uh, holy, you know, living stones, um, and things of that sort. Another place where the for- word forehead isn't used, but is obviously implied, is uh, just the law uh, in Deuteronomy six, um, you know, where where this the the Shema, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, is to be as frontless between your eyes, and, right. and so people they, they call them phylacteries, but they're some people they take that super literally and they put a little box with that verse and they stick it between their between yeah. their eyes. What you're
0: saying about the the mark with the with the priestly or the priest in particular in the book of Revelation in chapter five, part of the the new song that's being sung is that. You, the Lamb, have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, they shall reign on earth." So, I, I mean, I think that's a great connection to make. Before we leave this, this verse behind, I want to go back to something you said about the, the delay here. You know, that God is holding these four winds back through his four angels for a time. And here, you know, until we've sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads, it seems to me that that's really the same answer that the saints under the altar received when the fifth seal was opened. When they were told to rest a little bit longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers would be complete. So the delay that God is, or is what we see as a delay, I suppose, in the Lord's return, is for the purpose of His mercy, and that's something that we see throughout the, the Scriptures in, in multiple places where the return of the Lord is talked about.
1: Right, and that happens also, or a lot of people will make that connection with the flood, you know, he's told to build the ark, and then uh, the number of man's days shall be, and you can run that interpretation a couple of ways, but one of them is God is just holding off for this long for the sake of those who might repent.
0: Yeah. So then the fifth angel again has told the four, don't harm these things, keep holding the winds back until the servants of our God have been sealed on their foreheads. And then John hears the number of the sealed, one hundred forty-four thousand sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So, do you want to talk about the number first, or you want to talk about the the tribes of Israel and first? Which one you want to talk about first?
1: Uh, let's do the tribes of Israel first. Okay.
0: So, who are the f- sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel? Of course, we're going to get that list in verses five to eight. But the tribes of the sons of Israel. Who are we talking about here?
1: Uh, we're talking about the church. That's the simplest way to put it. And I. If, uh, one of my favorite things to instruct to my people, uh, my catechism kids is that when we are talking about Israel, how do we think about Israel in the old Testament? And the problem with the word Israel is it can refer to seemingly a hundred different things. Um, it could be the man whose name is Israel. It can refer to the geographical place. of the the nation Israel. It can refer to the nation state of Israel as we have it today, though not in scripture. But when we hear Israel today, that's often what people think of. Uh, It could be the ethnic nation, so people from Israel. It can be literally the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. Um, And it can be uh, the chosen people of God and so this is a, my preferred way to understand um, the the word Israel. Obviously context is going to dictate all of these things. The context never, ever, ever, ever leads you to take the word Israel to refer to the nation state of Israel from 1946 or 47. That's not it. So get that out of your head and run from that interpretation as far as possible and go ahead and keep your money. Um, because usually that's used, right, to raise money exactly to build, rebuild the right. temple. But um, no, the, who, who are Israel? Who is Israel? What's so significant about this? Why do we think that um, Genesis 12 is so important? Well, because these are the chosen people of God. Israel, you know, the grandson of Abraham. And so that that's who this is. We've got the the chosen people of God. And who are the chosen people of God? Well, we just looked at that, right? those who are sealed. And so there you go. That's that's who that every tribe of the of the of the people everybody. All people who can call uh Israel their father. Um and uh Genesis chapter 3 gets into this at, um very explicitly um not using the word Israel but his grandpa uh Abraham. And all those who have who have um faith are um sons of Abraham the man of faith.
0: Hmm. So Israel here is understood according to faith, not according to physical descent.
1: Right, yeah, it's not a yeah, it's not a pedigree of genetics.
0: All right, so these these people are going to be sealed, these are from the church. Now, what about the number 144,000?
1: Uh yep, the hun- so we get 12 obviously, the 12 tribes of Israel, and, and Jesus makes a really big big important uh, in, uh calling 12 disciples. They're frequently referred to as such, the 12, the 12, and then after Judas dies, the 11. But it is necessary that scripture might be fulfilled. One must take his place. God will have his 12. And so God is going to reconstitute. Uh, he is going to restore all things through his son, Jesus. And so we have We have the 12 of uh, the people of God before the incarnation of Christ. We have the 12 of uh, God's people after the incarnation of of Christ. So now we've got 12 times 12, right? And uh, and now we're at 144. And then to get to 144,000, we just multiply that by 10 three times. And I'm not big on the... And by big, I mean I'm not an expert on how these numbers uh, are representative. You'll often hear things like, well, seven is the number of completeness, completeness or holiness, and six is the number of not this, and 10 is the number of complete, blah, 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 blah. You, you get a, I, That's a very technical term, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but uh, sometimes I think people play fast and loose with that. We do know this. Uh, we have the 10 words of God, the Decalogue, uh, which are the 10 commandments. Um, And when you're reading through Revelation or Exodus 20, um, obviously they're they're not numbered. And so uh, it's kind of a comprehensive, 10 definitely becomes a comprehensive number. So if we take a comprehensive number and multiply it by a comprehensive number and multiply it by a comprehensive number, uh, you get to 144,000. If you want to parse it out and be explicit uh, past, present, future, you can do that. Uh, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. possible, but I, I wouldn't be dogmatic about it.
0: Mm. But, and then with the number 12, that being the number of the sons of Israel and the number of the apostles, it makes sense that that would be the number then that 10 gets multiplied by multiple times right? in this case, as opposed to, say, 7,000 or something like that. The 12 times 12 makes better sense in this context. But with all of that, then, the 144,000 and then the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes as we see in the list, we're not understanding that as literally counting like in your yearbook a 144,000 people but this then would be the the fullness the completeness of the church right
1: right yeah uh, myriads and myriads thousands upon thousands you know it's uh, how do we talk about everybody in a, you know in in a way that you know, we do this all the time oh i waited at the stoplight for 10 hours you know Uh, you weren't there at the stoplight for 10 hours. It's just, it's representative of a very long time. And this number is a very intentional number that is representative of all the people of God through all time.
0: So with the, so we're gonna avoid, say, the the error, and I think it seems to me that Jehovah's Witnesses are the most well-known for taking this 144,000 literally. I'm not sure if there are any Christian groups that actually take it quite so literally. Maybe they're out there. I would imagine they're more on the fringe.
1: Yeah, I, I'm not aware of any, and I don't even, I, I don't even know how the Jehovah's Witnesses understand this exactly. My, myself, I um,
0: try not to get into the weeds on that. So. Understood. Sure. Sure. We're going to take it though. Again, this is the fullness of the church. Now, but saying that what why do you think the number is given then as opposed to and we'll maybe talk about this more in the next text where the when we see the church triumphant it's a great multitude that no one can count so what is the significance of the of the counting here i've i've and i you can tell me what you think maybe you've you've got another idea, I've I've often said that when God counts things, like he numbers the hairs on our head, that means he knows nothing is lost to him. Right. And so that if he's, you know, if God knows p- precisely the number, then that means he's not going to lose any of us. I don't know, is there more significance, do you think?
1: The, and I'm indebted to Lou Brighton's commentary here, the structuring of the tribes of Israel as they, um, travel through the wilderness to the promised land uh, becomes significant they're divided each tribe is assigned a certain place around the tabernacle with the tabernacle of god in the middle of them all. and so here uh he makes a uh you know he, t- he talks about kind of a perfectly united army in marching orders uh ready to ready to go and luke brighton uh, i i did have the pleasure he's now sainted uh or at rest from his labors, we will say um, but I I was able to meet and talk with him. In fact, I took a class from him on this book, and uh, I just he has uh, he has a military background, and so that he might see a military image here uh, is uh, not not surprising to me. Um, but it is certainly grounded in in scripture, specifically the first few chapters of the book of Numbers.
0: Sure. Now we we don't hear everything about the one hundred forty four thousand here. They come up again in chapter fourteen. What are they? What do we learn from there about what they're doing here?
1: Um, they are uh, they're singing uh, the Song of the Lamb. And yeah, this is chapter 14 verse 1 and 3. Uh, so it says uh, they have the Father's name and the name of the Son written on their foreheads. And they're singing a new song before the throne um, and before the elders. And it's a song that, you know, no one can learn except these people. Um, and so it, whenever I hear a song, I, I can't help but think of Isaiah twelve. The Lord is my strength and my you know my song. As we have a versification of that in our Lutheran service book, the Old Testament Canticle from the Service of Prayer and Preaching. The Lord God is my strength and my song.
0: Yeah. So now, as as John hears the number, the one hundred forty four thousand sealed. Then verses five through eight list that there are twelve thousand from twelve tribes. And there's not a whole lot that we can necessarily say, but there maybe are a few things to point out within this list that, are, that bear some significance. It seems significant to me that the first tribe listed is Judah, and we know that's the tribe that Jesus comes from. What other things might we notice about this list that, that could bear some significance to what John is seeing?
1: Yep. Um, great question. The list defies organization. Uh, it really does. Uh, if you try to order it by, like, birth order, I wrote this down in the margins. The birth order of these people listed is 4, 1, 7, 8, 6, 13, 2, 3, 9, 10, 11, and
0: 12.
1: 13. 13, right? Because yeah. we have to add the children of Joseph here, Ephraim and Manasseh. Right. Uh, so then I went through and wrote in the margin, well, who are the mothers of these uh, people and it's Leah, Leah, Zilpa, Zilpa, Bilha, Aseneth, Leah, 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 Rachel, Rachel. So that doesn't uh, seem to work very well. So uh, on top of that, then uh, we know about the twelve tribes of Israel, but the the n- numbers get really goofy because Joseph gets split into two. So there is no allotment for Joseph. He doesn't get a, allotted land. But he does, but not by his name. He has two children, uh, two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, that are adopted uh, quite literally by Jacob uh, after um, they're reunited. Uh, And so they are given land. So you have Ephraim and Manasseh. So now you've got 14 kind of sons of Jacob. But it comes down to 12 tribal allotments because uh, Joseph gets divided between his two kids, and then Levi... Uh, gets scattered throughout, so that's the the priestly uh, crew uh, or tribe, and they are not given an allotment. Their inheritance is, is the Lord, and that is partly, depending on how far you want to get into this, uh, Levi is told, along with Simeon, so why this didn't happen to Simeon, I can't tell you, but Levi is told in the blessing of Jacob uh, that on account of his uh, murder of Shechem, uh, and that, being a man of violence, he he will be scattered throughout the nation of um, of the people, so he won't get his own place. Mm. Um, so you remove Levi, you remove Joseph, now you're down to 12 tribes, you replace him with Ephraim and Manasseh, now you're back up to 12, uh, but you really have a total of 14 people you're dealing with. So in this list, interestingly enough, we get Joseph and Levi listed, neither of whom had an allotment of land, uh, but who's missing You got to remove two. The two people who are missing are Dan, uh, who, by the way, is number five in birth order, uh, and Ephraim, who's uh, number 14 in order. Uh, Dan's mother is Bilhah, and Ephraim's uh, mother is Asenath. And maybe very quickly... Yeah, uh, why might
0: they be missing?
1: They might be missing because these uh, seem to be two of the tribes that are uh, frequently associate, associated with idolatry. Uh, the golden calves that Jeroboam built, one in Bethel, one in Dan. Um, and Dan did, you know, as a tribe was, uh, wrapped up in idolatry even, even earlier than that already in the book of Judges. And, um, and so Dan is often associated with a little bit of a, uh, kind of a heretical, a heretical bent. And, um, And so he he might be removed, and that would certainly fit with the the text from Ezekiel 9, where the people are marked, you know, by God, and it's those who have rejected the idolatry um, and have hungered and thirsted for righteousness.
0: So with about a minute left here, Pastor Cook, help us to wrap things up on this this vision that John sees, the number that he hears. What's the comfort for us in this part of Revelation?
1: Uh, The Lord uh, is uh, well aware of who his people are. Uh, he has certainly sealed them, so they need not fear the coming wrath of uh, the Lamb, for they are in the Lamb. They are sealed by the Lamb. Uh, They are a people of his own choosing, which is to say they are not accidentally brought in. It's a purposeful, intentional um, redemption, which is, uh, you know, it's one thing to get a form letter that says pre-sorted standard in the corner. It's something else to get a handwritten letter with an actual stamp on it. Uh, it's, it's good to know that uh, God has you in mind. And so in this comprehensive uh, salvation of the people of God, uh, who will withstand the wrath on the last day, um, we're not lost anywhere. We're, we're not just anonymous people uh, hiding in this big group but each one is sealed specifically uh, by the power and authority of of our Father in Heaven and His Son, by the Spirit. Pastor,
0: pastor Tim Cook is pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Lynn, Kansas. He's been helping us today to study Revelation 7, verses 1 to 8. Pastor Cook, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me thanks. on. It's been a joy. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the first part of Revelation 7, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.